You're listening to the Inside the Mix podcast with your host, Mark Matthews. Hello and welcome to the Inside the Mix podcast. I'm Mark Matthews, your host, musician, producer, and mix and mastering engineer. You've come to the right place if you want to know more about your favorite synth music artists, music engineering and production, songwriting, and the music industry. I've been writing, producing, mixing, and mastering music for over 15 years, and I want to share what I've learned with you. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Inside the Mix podcast. And in this episode, I'm very excited to welcome our guest today. Uh, We've got a Grammy Award-winning multi-platinum producer and mix engineer of Dom Morley. Now, Dom is the founder of the Mix Consultancy, which we'll touch on a bit later in the podcast. And he's also a tutor at uh, the music production of music production, rather at Leeds College of Music. Now, Dom has worked with artists such as Adele, um, Amy Winehouse, Jeff Beck, Mark Ronson, Underworld, and Sting, to name but a few. Sting really stood out to me because I've been on a bit of a Sting binge lately. So, um, fantastic stuff, Dom. Thanks for joining me today. And how are you? Uh, very good, thanks. Yeah, it's it's Friday evening, so all is good. As we're recording this, sorry, have I ruined, I've broken something by saying it's Friday. This is not live, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. To be fair, it probably would be quite good for me sometimes to give uh, the audience a bit of an indication of when these things happen. But no, 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 it is Friday evening, so we are in the UK. So I know I do have, a, or rather the podcast does have a, quite an international audience, but it is Friday evening in the UK, and I don't know about where you are, but it is the classic UK weather of wet and windy down where I am mm. in the southwest. Yeah, um, yeah. But there you go. That's what we've come to expect living in the UK. So, Dom, I thought what would be great is just to start, because we're going to move on to actual mix engineering a bit further down the line. It's just mm-hmm. a bit of your story. How did you get to the stage where, or status, where you are now, of be, being a mix engineer? Where did it all begin? Um, it began probably like most people. Um, like I was in a band um, as a teenager and then – wanted to record my band, so bought a few bits of, you know, recording gear. And this is back in the uh, mid-90s, early 90s. Um, so so the the cutting-edge studio gear for a home studio was a, like, Porter Studio, you know, the cassette things, which bizarrely mm. seem to be making a comeback. I have no yep. idea why. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah, weird. Anyway, uh, so it was before computer audio, so I had, I had one of those. Uh, and then bought an eight track, bought a few mics, and just got you know stuff like that, and and really enjoyed that bit. I didn't really like being well. I liked being in a band because I was with my mates. Didn't like performing; that didn't interest me. Um, but I really liked recording and getting things to sound good. So that sort of led eventually to me looking for a job in a studio. Um, and I went all around London with with the killer line: "I'll work for nothing. I make good tea." <laughs> um, figuring I could probably sign on or something. I'd find a way. Um, got yeah. nowhere. Three days of knocking on doors of studios got nowhere. So then went to Birmingham, tried the same line, and somebody said, "Yeah, all right, see you Monday." So um, I started work experience at a place um, and did manage to sign on. Uh, so I got a little bit of whatever it was called, job seekers allowance or something back in those days. Mm. That got me through enough weeks to make a few contacts, and somebody who was the chief engineer of the studio, also in Birmingham, that was owned by the band UB40. Uh, was looking for a, a brand new assistant. So uh, I got that gig based on recommendation from the people that I'd been kind of helping out for free at the uh, at the place where I was doing work experience. So then um, I was there for a couple of years and it was a good place. It was a, yeah, actually, I'm still friends with people that I work with there. Um, really good little studio. It was two rooms, um, kind of a, a good out of London studio because at the time, particularly in the 90s, it was incredibly London centric. Um, and uh, and then uh, after, I think it's two and a half years there, I moved down to London and I did a bit of freelance assisting around and then managed to get a job at Metropolis, which is a big studio in Chiswick, um, the biggest independent in Europe at the time and probably still is, actually, to be fair. Um, five studios, all sorts of different desks, all sorts of different bits of gear, um, mastering rooms, just everything. So that was that was a real that was the one I wanted that gig. Um uh, and it, it was actually because it might be an interesting sort of angle for your listeners. But the reason why I wanted Metropolis is because I'd worked at, at this uh, studio we had in, in Birmingham. We had an SSL desk upstairs and something uh, called a name Angela downstairs. Now, what would happen occasionally is you get an engineer who had been booked into the wrong room and he was on the AMEC Angela and he was expecting an SSL and he basically couldn't work. And I'd, it happened a couple of times where it was like, if I haven't got an SSL, I can't do anything. And I didn't want to be tied to any one bit of gear ever unless I could afford to buy it. 
and then I could take it with me. But I, so Metropolis at the time had three different SSLs, an E-series, G-series and J-series, a Focusrite desk, which is very rare, and a Neve VR. So at that point, I thought if I trained there, I'd just know how to use desks. And then I could walk into any studio and be perfectly happy with whatever's in front of me because I just know how to use gear, you know, rather than being tied to any specific bit of equipment. So that's that's kind of a principle I've always held really ever since that um, I've always got a reasonable amount of gear myself anyway. um, And that's great. But I can sort of go anywhere. I might take a couple of bits with me, but that'd be it. You know, I'd be happy wherever I work. So, um, yeah, that was that idea. And then so I was there for a bit. Working up from the very bottom, you know, newest assistant gets all the 24-hour sessions, all that sort of stuff. Um, After about seven years there, I was in-house engineer, went freelance. I was getting enough sort of work to go freelance. And then, um, yeah, I've been been freelance for 12 years, something like that. Um, Had a little studio in Metropolis for a while. I shared it with a friend of mine called Chris Potter. Uh, The two of us just rented a room at Metropolis. But then I moved out of London to where I am now about seven years ago got this studio in Ox well this building in Oxfordshire which I turned into a studio um Mm. and so yeah I've been here ever since that's that's the potted history of quarter of a century of me working there you go (laughs) fantastic (laughs) yeah it's it's like it's kind of like that classic story of like the the I don't want to say the the tea runner but I guess it is in a way you sort of like you you start at the bottom there um and I, I love the idea of the variety being the key to success and I think that's a great – I think it's a great mindset mentality to have in, in probably most creative aspects is having a bit of variety so you'd be able to take yourself into other studios and other situations. Yeah, do you just think carry on working and selling. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, do you think the – because the, the way you sort of entered the industry, does that sort of avenue still exist? Is it still possible to do that if you wanted to get experience in a studio? Um, it does, but the opportunities are far fewer than they were in the 90s. Mm. Um, it's kind of flipped because back then um, there were hardly any courses that you could do on, on engineering. You couldn't really – as far as I knew, there was SAE, Alchemy, Tonmeister, and I think one other were all the ones that I knew that did like music production or sound engineering. Um and and so it's hard to get on those courses because you know because there were so few. So so you'd get a job in a studio. And I actually sort of my plan was initially, um, if I didn't have a job after four months, I'd probably have run out of all my money. Um, and they sort of started to get a bit edgy about you signing on for too long. Um, mm. So then I'd try and go start a course and, and try and start full time education. Um, so that was. Uh, that was the sort of way it was around there. You try and get a job in a studio. If you couldn't, you maybe go into education and then you'd meet some people that way and then start working. So, so this now it's sort of flipped in that you, you there are a lot of courses and a lot of good courses. And oh, I'm actually at Leeds Conservatoire, by the way. It's not Leeds College of Music. It used to be called Leeds oh, College of Music, but it's oh, now I see. so I'll let you off. It's changed. It's Leeds <laughs> Conservatoire. Um, so, so now there's loads of those um, and there's not many studios. So, actually, I think the route these days is, is more to to study and and this is the crucial bit is to meet people there and start working because that's really what you want to do wherever you are whether you're working in a studio or you're working in in uh, or you're at college the point is you you learn on the job or in the on the course and you meet people and you start working and that's how you get a career and and so that's you know that's what I did fortunately the diff- the difference being fortunately if you get a job in a studio you're paid to do that Whereas if you're obviously doing a course, you have to pay to do that. But but the, the principle is the same, is that you are there to learn how to do it and to network in order to meet people and start working. We'll be right back. So I've got a hunch about a common struggle we all face, mastering. If you're an independent artist or music producer, you've probably encountered the frustration of masters that just don't hit the mark, right? They lack balance and refuse to play nicely across different devices and environments. Ever found yourself wondering, why don't my masters sound like my references? Perhaps you've spent countless hours attempting to master your tracks only to be unsatisfied with the results. Maybe you've tried every Silver Bullet plugin or even dabbled in AI. Or perhaps you're already working with an engineer, but you're eager to explore different possibilities. Well, here's the solution you've been searching for, Synth Music Mastering. I'm offering a game-changing opportunity 
community with a one-time free test master for a limited time. Picture elevating your music with my unwavering commitment to quality and a personalized touch that you just don't get with the big mastering studios. The best part, it won't cost you a penny. Just submit your finished mix and let's see how we can transform your music together. Don't let mastering be a mystery any longer. Say goodbye to the frustration and step into a world of sonic excellence. Grab your free test master now, click the link in the episode description, or head over to synthmusicmastering.com. Yeah, so with with the courses like for the Leeds Conservatoire, which I uh, my due diligence there let me down <laughs> in the run up to the podcast interview. <laughs> um, with with that there, and uh, with your students, are you actively telling them so sort of, sort of from day dot like you're here to study, but also at the same time you should be out there networking and you should be out there meeting artists 100%. and recording, performing yeah. whichever avenue they want to go down from day dot. Yeah, yeah. So I teach the I actually teach the masters. I'm a tutor for the masters in music production. So it's only a year course, um, like a full twelve month one. Um, and when in the first or second session, I'll start the conversation with right. So in a year's time, what are you going to do to make money out of what you've learned this year? And 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 then keep having that conversation again and again and again to push them to make plans to have things that they start. Because the other, the other thing is, it, oh, everything always takes a long time to actually, between having the idea or being asked to do a job and getting paid. And, and you, the idea is that I want them to start getting the ball rolling on that and, and, and having things that they've got in the, in the pipe work and ideas they've started to put into place so that when they leave, they can focus on it more, but also money's starting to come in already. So yeah, I definitely, definitely say that. Fantastic. It kind of it kind of segues ish nicely into the next part then, which is kind mm-hmm. of we've got the educational side of things and building that experience. So what I'd like to move on to now really is is the actual the, the mixing side of things. So the, this podcast episode in particular is going to sort of centre around that 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 cool. mix engineering specifically for those who are who are learning, um, mm-hmm. and obviously there are going to be bits and pieces in there for the for the for the experts and the intermediates as well. So I mean the, the first question really I think is quite a good one, and it kind of links to I listened to the podcast. Uh, podcast the production expert podcast that you did yourself with mike exeter as well okay yeah he's the guy that gave me my first job mike exeter was yeah. working at was ub40 he your mentor? studio yeah well he was working at ub40 studio ah. he was the chief engineer there so when i got that first job out of work experience it was him that gave it to me how amazing and he's yeah. uh he's worked with some big bands sabbath priest being a metalhead that immediately i was like okay oh really yeah nice. well that was the first session i did there the very first session was tony iomi recording some uh some oh. demos with Glenn Hughes um, singing and Don Airy on keys and, and wow. Mike engineered it as the in-house engineer. And basically Mike's worked with Tony Omis, Tony Omi since then. He's been his engineer since then. That came wow. out as the, the depth really? session. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's quite <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's what... That was one hell of a session for your first session to sit <laughs> It on really was, yeah. It was quite mad. Yeah. That is... Yeah. Yeah. I'd be... I'd, I would struggle not to be in awe of just watching him play guitar and not taking everything else around in um, with yeah. regards to the engineering and everything else that's going on. It um, was quite surreal. Fantastic. But also fair play to Mike for putting a brand new kid on, on a session that was yeah, pretty yeah. important, you know. But yeah, he, he did. So <laughs> yeah. I was obviously a lucky charm though, as he's still working with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, this kind of leads off from that ex- that um, that episode in particular of the Production Ooh. Expert podcast. Um so it's kind of like the question being, if you could tell our audience a bit about the difference between sort of a radio-friendly sort of professional mix and a novice mix. Now, you run the mix consultancy, which we'll touch on in a bit. But when you receive those mixes in, because I'm assuming they're, they're, they're various degrees of quality, what generally separates that sort of entry-level mix to that professional mix? Um, there's two things, I think, that are key, really, which, which take a while to learn. Um, and, and one of them I think people know and the other one people don't. And the one that I think people know is um, about EQing things. So they sit together and there's space in the mix and there's clarity around the different instruments that are there. Um, and that allows the dynamic of the track to come through as well. So it not only helps the individual sounds, but also allows the dynamic of the song to come through. Because once you've got instruments sitting together nicely, you can start pushing them up and down, doing what you want with them because they're not fighting with each other for a certain amount of space. Um, and, and that's the big thing I think I find a lot with people that mix consultancy that I help them with is, is to hear that, that, that 
clash where those problems are happening because that's that's I think the thing that takes so long to learn when you're just sat there on your own learning how to mix and the reason why I came up with the idea with the mix consultancy in fact was after one particularly revelatory experience that I had where um, I was an assistant on a session it was there was a very big band I don't think I'm allowed to say who it was but it was a very big band with decades worth of recordings and we were going through everything and digitizing it because it was all on tape just putting it into Pro Tools and going uh, and a rough mix of each one because it was a band that sort of did a lot of jamming as well as writing so they you know there were a lot of jams that might turn into songs they just wanted to know what they had recorded you know that in case there was anything useful that they wanted to revisit for the next record so there were three rooms running three engineers three assistants of which I was one and one guy who was producing overseeing the whole thing who was also a mix engineer too uh, who I'd worked with loads I, I, I knew him well um, so what happened was the engineer that I was working with was ill for a couple of days so uh Chris, who was producing it, said to me, look, Dom, can you just step in and and do what we've been doing for a couple of days and, you know, load them into Pro Tools, do a quick rough mix, and when every rough mix, just give me a call and I'll come down and just spend 20 minutes, you know, just finishing it off, which for me was just a golden opportunity to do it as good as I could do it and then have somebody with 20 years of experience sit down and go, right, here's what I'm going to change from here. So then yeah. I was looking over his shoulder going, okay, he's changed that. Well, that sounds so much better from that little tweak. I didn't realize there was a problem there, but now he's changed it. I can hear it. So it was a huge thing for me. In a couple of days, I learned so much just from leaning over him and hearing what he had heard and how he changed it. So that's what I, you know, the, the idea with the MITS consultancy is that people can send stuff into me. And I've been doing this for 25 years. So I've probably got a bit of experience on quite a lot of people. Um, and, and I can just go, right, well, these these are the changes that I would do if I was sat in front of this mix now. I can hear problems at 300 hertz in the guitar or 80 hertz in the kick drum and and, and, and recommend a, a change, which would normally be generally about the ballpark of where it ends up being, being apparently from the feedback I get from people that use it. Um, but the important thing is what I find really inspiring about doing it, because I'll do that and, you know, I'll, I'll send someone a PDF of here's what I've changed, here's all the things I've changed with this track, and, and it's a lot of it is EQ stuff, just to clear everything out and make it all sound great. Um, but then what's great is people use it again and again and again. They use the service. I get, get quite a lot of people that, mm. that once they've used it once, you know, realise that, that it's, it's helping them a lot. And they get much better very quickly. Yeah. Because they, they can hear it then. You know, they, they hear that problem that I spot and they go, oh, yeah. So then that doesn't happen the next time. So it's a really interesting process that um, getting the stuff, the repeat business from people and realizing how quickly they're learning how to get better at mixing. Um, the other thing that people don't realize, I think, is how important um, automation and balance is to mm-hmm. moving a mix from being good to being great. And and I think the, the tale I always tell my students is I, I watched an interview with Andy Wallace, who I think is an atom, incredible mix engineer, um, does a lot of rock stuff. Um, and he said he spends about 45 minutes doing all the EQ, compression, effects, balance. And he's got probably three assistants that do most of this, you know, setting up a mix for him. But 45 minutes to get a mix together is not a lot of time. That's extremely quick. Yeah. He's been doing it for like twice as long <laughs> as I have, so he should be fast, but even so. Yeah. But then he said he spends 10 hours on a mix. So the rest of the time he's doing these little automation moves and moving things around so that everything hits at exactly the right time. And, and really you're drawing the, the point of what you're doing there. The, the job of the mixer is to draw the listener's attention to the right thing at every beat of the mix. So you know the listener's always hearing the vocal or that little grace note on the snare or the fill on the bass or the delay you set off on the guitar that was a cool little sound to fill that gap and pushing the person the, the listener's interest around that is all about automation and 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 it's a sort of it's an odd task because you set up a, a nice balance and everything's sounding good and then you start getting into the automation and it sort of falls apart a bit while you're doing stuff on the drums or stuff on the guitars or vocals and your balance falls apart so it always sounds worse before it sounds better um, but then at the end, when you've actually got it nailed, um, having done some good EQ work before, compression and effects are working, all of that stuff, getting the automation work so the dynamics of the song are being served properly um, is the difference between a good and a great mix. Fantastic. So you've got two things there, haven't you? So it's sort of like the EQ and the clarity, as you mentioned there, and the automation. Mm-hmm. Um, what about compression? Because compression, having spoken to and been involved with a lot of the, the listeners, and compression is something that comes up a lot. 
What what yeah. pitfalls? Pitfalls might be the wrong word, but what what challenges do you see in a novice mix with regards to compression? Uh, the first one is being able to hear what it's doing, because I know I couldn't when I started out. I had no idea. When I first started yeah. the studio, people were talk, putting compression on and talking about compression, and I was like nodding and grinning and going, yeah, thinking, I can't hear the difference. I don't know what they're talking about. Um, and then and then finally I got to go in the studio on my own, because obviously this is pre-DAWs, you know, I didn't get a chance to do anything on my own and play with it. So then I sort of put something through a compressor and slammed it. I went, oh, okay, well, that's doing it wrong, because that's too much. But then if I peel it back, then I can notice how it sort of starts to make things pump a little bit and then you put a couple of things together and they start pumping together and, oh, I can see how this is a good thing. I understand it a bit better now. So um, so that's challenge one, is actually hearing what it's doing um, yeah. without doing it too much, without sort of, you know, absolutely slamming everything. Um, but then then I think the other thing that people get confused by a lot is um, is settings like, like attack and release, um, not all compressors have those on, obviously, but um, but if you do, I always say, like, with release, set it to release in time with the music. That's that's your best safe option. So watch the needle go back in time with the music, and then and then you know you're pulling everything to be moving in time, so you're helping the groove of the song by doing that. And then with attack time, yeah. start slow. Start slow so it's not really doing anything, and then go faster and faster on the attack time until it starts to grab the thing that you are trying to compress. Um, and then and then And then leave it when it sounds good is the bottom line. Um, so that that's attack and releases. That's what I would sort of recommend as as when you're learning and start doing that. And the other thing I think is again, this sort of reaches into the automation. Don't use compressors to level out your mix. Use automation to do that. Use compressors mm-hmm. to make things grabby and punchy and exciting because that's what they're really good at at leveling things out. They're okay. That's that was all we had back in like the seventies and sixties and fifties. We only had compressors. We didn't have automation, so you had to use it to sort of squash things. Whereas these days, that's better done with automation and and with with compressors. You can use them for what they're really good at nowadays, which is making things punchy and exciting. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of what you said about the attack and release because I remember when I was starting out, and admittedly, I, I haven't been in the in the industry of the game as long as yourself. But I, I would struggle with the attack and release and, and in terms mm. of what to do. And they're yeah. very much like you've said right there is I found uh, it was either a tutorial or an article. In fact, it might have been uh, Bobby Ozinski. It might have been in the Bobby Ozinski Mix Engineer's Manual or Engineer Manual. And mm. he sa- and it said exactly what you said there about... Oh, did he? Um, right. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the slow attack and then right. the, the release in time with the, mu- uh, oh, time fantastic. With the music. So it's not just me yeah, that yeah. thinks that's a good idea. Then. That's good. <laughs> no, I've been, and I've been doing it ever since. And, right, um, cool. it, and, it, and yeah, it, and it works wonders. Um, yeah. And it's a fantastic one. Going back to the EQ, mm-hmm. with regards to EQ, if you're just starting out, do, are there, can you think of any um, sort of exercises, like ear training exercises or anything along those lines to help with regards to what EQ is mm-hmm. doing and how to balance those frequencies? Um, I just... I don't know about ear training exercises. What what I what I try and tell people is um, put 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 a thing in the mix, whatever it might be. Start with one thing and then add another thing, and see if you can hear a problem that where it's not as clear as it was before. It doesn't sound as good as it was before. And where is that? Because there's, there's normally somewhere, unless you've got a kick and a hi hat, you know, that are so far apart, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Um, but say put two guitars or a guitar and a piano or a couple of synths together or stuff and, um, and go, okay, where, where is the problem? Where does it sound muddy and confused and busy where, it, where it's not separated? Um, and what you've got there is, is an area where they both have a presence um, and they both are, you know, have a reasonable you know, volume in that frequency, uh, but they're not both allowed it because it sounds worse. So you've got to make a call. <laughs> on who gets yep. to win at that point. Um, and so so then just boost. I you know, I, I mean, I still do this all the time. Boost and sweep around. So boost up 3 or 4 dB or whatever you want to do. Sweep that around till you hear the point where you go, oh, yeah, that frequency, that's the one that I don't like. And then take that out of one or the other um, and, and, and see who sounds better without it. So it might be you take it out of the guitar, say, and it's like, well, now the guitar's lost what we need from the guitar by taking yeah. that frequency out therefore it's got to go from the synth or the piano because because you can't lose the the, the main sort of focus of the guitar by doing this so um like for a good example i do it with the vocal when i start a mix is i find like a, a present frequency of the vocal normally sort of between two and three k which is sort of the peak 
sensitivity of human hearing uh, because that's where voices, you know, are most present. So I find a spot mm-hmm. there by, by doing a boost and a sweep. And, and there's normally a point where it feels like the singer's just stepped forward a foot, you know, that it's just a little bit more present when I boost that frequency and go, okay, that's their spot. Nothing else is allowed there. So in everything from there, then I, I do, you know, make a note of the frequency. And then for the rest of the mix, everything else has to have a dip there because the vocal has to be there. Um, there's nothing that can fight with the vocal. So I don't care who you are. You might be a snare drum. You might be a great guitar sound. You ain't going in that frequency because the vocal's got it. Yeah, that's a fantastic tip um, because I think with vocals in particular, now the podcast itself is sort of centered um, and it focuses on like the, the synth side of things and synth, th- synth uh-huh. music, which is why I was, for the, for the audience, if you're watching this, um, this podcast, you'll see there's a, an array of modular synths in the background there. In Dom's uh, in Dom's studio, which is incredibly impressive, um, but yeah, and and I, I do get the question a lot of, of vocal and in terms of bringing vocal because a lot of synthwave tracks and synth music, uh, I say a lot, a vast majority of it is is instrumental and bringing those vocals in, and that that's a really cool way of doing it. Um, and I like the idea of just saying and, and being rigid and strict and saying nothing else is going to go in that spot. Yeah. Um, that I've picked out with 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 that EQ suite. Which and is actually, it's quite often I see I see things on forums. I really shouldn't go on forums, but occasionally I go on forums and I see people saying, um, you know, how do I get why why isn't my vocal fitting in this track? And then somebody will, will suggest like a ten plug-in chain. I'm just like, oh god, <laughs> it's just like the guitars are in the same spot as the vocals. It's never there's nothing you can do to that vocal to make it fit. You do it yeah. to the guitars and make some space for it, and then it'll be fine. And easy moving the guitars and everything's done. So that sort of thing is, yeah, it's once you, and again, it's sort of the thing with the mixed consultancy. Once you've 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 done it a few times, it's sort of it kind of it's obvious, you know, you, you hear it straight away because you're sort of you're used to listening for it and finding it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting um, that with regards to the plug-in chains, because scrolling through the internet, scrolling through social media, and I see various posts every now and again. I say quite every now and again, quite a lot, and it's just plug-in chain after plug-in chain after plug-in chain, which is great. But a lot of the time, as you say there, it's not necessarily the plug-in chain that your plugins or whatever it is you're using. That's the issue. It's uh, it's that frequency balance. Mm. So it, I, there's another question I wanted off the back of this. But before we go on to that, my next question was going to be, you mentioned there about the vocals. So when you're actually starting a mixed session, Mm-hmm. which instrument group are you starting with? Or does it vary depending on the project? Uh, well, I do that thing with the vocal and then I do the drums. That's always my ah. route. So I know where the hole's got to be for the vocal. And then, because the, the, the drums define, the kick defines the bottom end, the snare defines the mid-range and the hi-hats define, cymbals define the top. So once you've got those in place, then you can start fitting the instruments in. But um, I would, I would hate to have to fit drums in after the fact, you know, because they are everywhere mm. um so mm. so i'd hate to have to try and fit that in after i'd got in all the rest of the instrumentation that would be a pain so that's always the route i go yeah that's, uh, it's a similar route that i follow myself and in other discussions I've, I've heard other engineers do do that as well with regards to the drums admittedly i've no i don't think i've ever started a mix with the vocals first but certainly something i'm going to try going forward now because it's being in the being a, a sort of engineer, a producer myself, and quite new to new to the game, as it were, compared comparative to yourself, it's still learning that. And I find the vocal chain is probably well, the vocal chain probably don't want to use that term, but the vocals being the hardest bit That's of the job. mix to, to get right. And yeah. and I think actually maybe doing it first is yeah. is the way and to go. And then make space for it. Yeah, make sure every time you bring an element yeah. in, it's not fighting with the vocal because it's not allowed to. Yeah, and I think also, what I've noticed. Yeah, exactly. And what I've noticed in mixes that I've done myself is that I, I, when I've left the vocal to the end and I've got all this other stuff going on and I'm, I'm just like, shit, where does that vocal go now? Mm. Um, get, and I've had the it audio so many crowbar times and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, and then I go through track by track and I'm like, right, yeah. I need, I'm going to have to get rid of that. I'm going to have to get rid of that. I'm going to have to get rid yeah. of that. Get rid of that. And then I'm like, I'm just going to have to write the song, like produce Start and, and compose yeah. the song all over again. Yeah. So audience listening, vocals first. <laughs> go with the vocals first. Yeah, and I, I, to be honest, I don't really go to town with it. I don't go to town with it. I know some people who do the whole vocal sound first and then carry on. I just find out the main present frequency in that mid-range and go, okay, I know it's got to be there. And then I move on. So there'll be more that I do afterwards, but uh, I just need to know that bit. Uh, so it's actually just picking out the, the sort of frequency, that, that mm-hmm. pivotal frequency, and then yeah, the actual yeah. rest of the processing will be done further down the line. Yeah, yeah. But there are other people that do it the other way. 
I, I know people that start with the vocal sound, particularly, I think, more often than not, people working like real pop stuff. Um, that yeah. I've known people do that, where they get the, uh, the whole vocal sound effects, compression, the works, and then start bringing other things in. That's an interesting way of doing it. Um, mm. Because if, if you were to start with them, with, the, with, the, with all that to begin with, and then you bring other instrumentation in, would you not need to then go back and adjust well i suppose you're going to do it anyway and adjust that you, those the, that vocal processing that you've exactly. done you do do it anyway you know when you're doing a mix it's not like you you know you set up your bass yeah. sound and then and then that's done i'll never touch that again you know you always you know tweaking stuff and going back in and interesting kind of segues nicely then onto mm-hmm. the next part which is you imagine we've gone through all this process then and uh we've gone through the mix we're we're relatively happy how do you know when the mix is finished and ready to put to bed? Now, this is something that I struggle with personally a lot, mm-hmm. um, and I go through the I go I can go through binge editing, and I can be sat there and just binging and doing it needlessly. Yeah, and, um, I slap myself on the wrist for doing it. I have a set process for this, um, which actually I thought loads of people did, and then I, was ch- I I do like a monthly chat with a couple of other guys who I trained with back in Metropolis, and we just sort of because we used to do this sitting around the coffee machine and we don't do that because we're all in our own little studios. So, so I do a monthly zoom, uh, with those guys. And, um, and, and I, I brought it up my process and I thought everyone did it and it, they didn't, they hadn't heard of this. So here, here, what I do is, so I have two sets of speakers. I have some Neumann's, um, and some Yamaha NS10s. Um, and then I have two sets of headphones that I use for mixing as well. I have some Grado's, um, and then uh, these things called Ross and Audio ones, which are very nice posh ones. Um, and, and what I do is I pick one of those things for my first pass. So I've got the sound, everything's kind of together, but I need to get into automation now to get the thing finished. So I, I pick one of those things and go from start to finish, doing everything that I can hear, everything that I think needs doing. Uh, so maybe say it's on the Neumanns, so do, do everything so it sounds finished to me on the Neumanns. Then I go on to another one. Probably I'll go into the Grados, do the same from start to finish. Then I go into the NS10s, same thing. Then I go into the Rossens, same thing there. And then back to the Neumanns for last pass. And at that point, I probably can't hear anything I want to change. And once I've done the last pass on the thing that I started on, I'm done. So you, you, you're sort of trialing it on different systems or different listening environments, yeah. headphones. and then. So I'm kind of doing the mix, going through, doing all my automation moves, everything that I want to do. And then I'm jumping on a different set of monitors and doing the same thing. Where there's always less, you know, there's less for each each round. There's far less yeah. for you to do. But it, it just means I'm, I know I'm not missing anything because I'm checking out on all my different systems and, and, and making the changes that I hear on there. And, and then, you know, I do, I have got these different ones because they all do sound a little bit. I like the sound of them all, but they are all a bit different. So, um, yeah, that's how it works. With regards to different different listening environments, um, I... I sort of audition mixes and productions in the car and i i hear conflicting stories with that i hear uh, or i rather i read some individuals will say no you shouldn't do that and others will say well yes you should what are your opinions on on auditioning sort of in a in a car environment um you should do if it works you know if you if you can sit in the car Mm. and you hear your mix and you hear something that's not right about it and then you go and change that thing that you heard and it sounds better then that's a great listening environment for you um and it's just like you know with with these headphones these these speakers they won't work for some people but they work for me so it's great um the car thing didn't work very well for me so i stopped doing it um uh it might just been i didn't like the stereos particularly in the cars that i had (laughs) i've got a new car now with a nice stereo so maybe i'll start doing it but i can't be bothered what i've got at the moment works so let's not let's not mess with that too much um but no, I, I think I think any of those kind of rules that people set is like I find a bit weird. Uh, like when people mm. say you can't mix on headphones, well, you can, and if yeah. your mixes sound really good on headphones, then keep doing it. So um, yeah, and there's slight, there's very slight technical things that people say about it. Ah, oh, but this tiny technical thing, it's like yeah, but people, if you know that and you know your headphones well, you work around that, and you know that that's the case. It's mm-hmm. like you know, there's people that you know suffer from minor levels of hearing loss that are mix engineers and and they work around it their perception deals with it and they turn out brilliant mixes and uh, i was speaking to a mastering engineer recently who said it always used to be the case back in like the 80 up to the end of the 80s that people would come into mastering and go i've got a bit of a hole in my hearing about 500 hertz so there might be something odd there but there you go 
and then they carry on. It'd be a brilliant mix and there'd be something very odd about that. So all those things, those little limitations that everybody has either in themselves or in their room or in their whatever, as long as you know what they are, um, you can carry on and get a great job. Yeah, I agree with that. I've, I've spoken to numerous producers, and I know I know a few off the top of my head, and who mix predominantly with headphones, and their their mixes sound great, and the production sound great. I did know this is way back when I was I was studying uh, music production, and there was a there was a, a lad, and he was mixing using Apple in ear headphones, um, wow. and his yeah I know, and his his production sounded amazing, and he'd obviously Perfect. attuned them so, yeah. and he'd done it so much, and he was so attuned to using them and how they translated. He mm. got it totally dialed in, which was incredibly yeah, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it kind of leads on to the next bit then with regards to mis- misconceptions and myths. So with regards to mix engineering, what do you think is the biggest sort of misconception or myth that maybe someone who's starting out would read or hear? Mm. Good point. I think probably any of those ru- aforementioned rules, I think, are misconceptions and myths. The idea that you can't do something and and i always try and try and remember that when i'm telling people how i do stuff or how i'd recommend to do stuff Mm. and yeah unless you don't agree with that or unless you think that sounds rubbish in which case don't do it and and i do that in the mix consultancy stuff as well i try and flag up like this comment is a slightly in the realms of production rather than mixing like it's like this is a taste comment so try it see if you like it if you don't sack it off it doesn't matter but it's just I always try and approach it of like, what would I do if I was sat here? Here's what I would do, right? So that's, that's um, I try and check myself on that sort of thing. But yeah, I think if you ever hear anyone sort of saying, oh, you, you, can't, you, you can't monitor on those, you can't listen on that, you shouldn't do this, that plugin's not for that, it's for this, you can't mix with plugins, it's got to be analog, it's got to be digital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's nonsense. All that matters is what comes out of the speakers. Does it sound good? If it does... You've nailed it. Yeah, uh, exactly that. And it's a case of like the end listener is not going to really care too much about the process not, of putting not it together. Not a tiny bit. Not a tiny bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly that. Um, and it leads on again to this next question. And it kind of falls under, maybe it does fall under the myths and misconceptions. And this regards to sort of mixing and then mastering. Because a lot of the audience do mix and master. They produce, they write, produce, mix, master mm. their own music. Yeah. What is What is your opinion on mixing and mastering your own music should you get maybe someone else to master it um is it yeah basically that is the question do you think it's worthwhile getting a second set of ears to master that music if if it is possible and it falls yes. within your sort of budget yes always yes i would always do that if i could and i i i think i've, I've once or twice mastered something that i've mixed myself but um i feel it's a bit like marking your own homework if you do that <laughs> um, whereas if, if I send it to someone else, then, then, then I'm getting a second set of professional ears listening to the mix in a different room, which is also good, you know, um, mm-hmm. on different speakers than or my lot, um, and, and getting their kind of take on it. Um, so yeah, I would always recommend to do that. I know it is a budgetary thing. Um, but I think that the problem that I think has sort of crept into music production is it seems that people think it's the norm to mix and master something like it's all one process and it's one person's job and it isn't and i don't think it should be i understand that sometimes that's how things go um just like sometimes you know you're better off as a performer somebody else doing the engineering for you so all you have to think about is the performance you don't have to think about how things are rooted and, and, and all that sort of stuff. You, you can focus on the one job that you've got, which is performing. And if you've got an engineer, they can do their bit and you get a better result on both ends. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes you've got to do it yourself, do all the jobs yourself. Same with mixing and mastering. Sometimes you just have to do it and, and that's how life is. But if you get an opportunity to get someone else to cast their ears over it and go, this is perhaps a little bit heavy here, I think you can push it this much on the compression, blah, 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 then uh, I would always do that. Um, the one sort of thing um, that I think people need to be aware of with using other mastering engineers, using other people to do it, is be aware of how you want your track to sound and let them know if they didn't do that. Because I, th- I have had mixed experiences with mastering engineers and, and the ones I use now, ones I've used, you know, I, I found a few guys that I use a lot, um, and they sit there and listen to the mix and go, 
okay, that's what he's aiming for. And then they just make that better. And mm-hmm. occasionally in the past, I've had people go, oh, right, he's probably got that wrong then. I'm going to change this completely. And I'm like, well, that's <laughs> not what we wanted because my mix got the okay from the band. Everyone was happy. Yeah. And so now you're supposed to just make that a bit better with the mastering job, hear any problems, whatever, but not completely change it. Um, so that's that's just the only bit of advice I say I'd give if you're sort of new to farming mastering out to other people is is be aware that you know this is you, if the mix is signed off and okay everyone likes it that's what everyone wants and it just needs to be a slightly embellished version of that not something completely different. Yeah, uh, fantastic advice. And do you think it's worth I don't, with mastering finding a mastering engineer who specialises in the specialised might be the wrong word but their, their wheelhouse is the genre of music that you're working within because I, I guess mastering engineers though they're, they're quite broad aren't they in terms of what they master yeah I mean wrong. I know that that often happens um, I mean it, it happens in all areas of the industry really there's people get known mm. for doing certain things and it's mostly because you've done those things a bit and people recognise you for it and go oh well he did that record that sounds a bit like mine so so he can have mine now. And then you just end up down a sort of, you know, a bit of a path. It's something I've tried to avoid, if at all possible, because I think it keeps life more interesting if you're doing, like, a variety of things. Yeah. Um, but um, but but then you sort of end up, you, you end up doing a better job on things that you understand more, I think. So that, that kind of does make a bit, bit of sense. Like, I don't do a lot, or I don't do any hip-hop. I don't do any kind of black metal you know those are things i don't listen to so it's not stuff yeah. that i would i would do a good job on i don't think so um and and unfortunately i don't get offered it so i don't have to say no to anybody because they've also not seen any of that on my cv so it's fine it all yeah. works out okay but yeah I, I i would you know there's no harm in looking about in the cv and if none of it's what you are into or want to sound like then maybe find somebody where the cv does look like something you want to sound like because that's what they're working on every day if it's a certain sort of thing. So there's no harm in it. it yeah, I don't think it's vital, um, but I think it might make things a little smoother. Yeah, so I suppose the key bit of information or advice there would be is obviously, I think if you're going to choose a mastering engineer to go check out their CV, their their, their portfolio mm. of music that they've done and see if it sort of resonates with the music that you have. Yeah. And then you'd be able to make a sort of an informed decision from that. Yeah, um, and they'll probably understand what you're aiming for because that's the sort of stuff yeah. they work on every day. So, yeah, fantastic. Don, I'm well aware we uh, we're all 40 minutes in already, and um, what I'm going to move on to now. So, the the Inside the Mix podcast has a Facebook community group, and in there, when I'm doing an interview, I will post and say uh, if, if you've got questions uh, you'd like me to put toward um, the interviewee, do post them. So, I've got three questions here. So, the first one is from Maurice, aka Kumo Wee. Um, and he asks, uh, is it different to mix for vinyl? And if you do, uh, well, he's actually got two questions. So that's the first mm-hmm. one. Is it different if, you make, if you're mixing for vinyl? Mm-hmm. No, uh, that's a mastering process. Uh, mixing would be exactly the same. Um, and mastering, it's, uh, and, and I'm, you know, as a not mastering engineer, I'm going to explain this really badly. Um, <laughs> and mastering engineers, if they're hearing this, are going to be shouting. Uh, but uh, the way I understand it is in order to get it onto the vinyl, um, you have to do certain things about monoing the bass and being careful how much bass you put on it because that can cause the needle to jump if there's too much because the cut's too deep and things like that. So the, there's a technical process uh, that means you have to master it slightly differently. So so if you are mastering a record, um, you know, an album, you might master it separately for um, a digital uh, upload than you would for vinyl because there's different considerations. Fantastic, thanks for that. Then, so basically, um, the, the mix is essentially the same, and then it falls into the master, the realm of mastering. Then for the for the vinyl, yeah. The, the only thing, actually, one thing is, if you had a super stereo bass, I think that wouldn't get on vinyl, and they'd have to do something about that. So you might want to think about that when you're mixing. I think that's the only the only consideration I would do is if I had like a really big stereo bass sound, I think mm, might not fit on vinyl. That so, yeah. Fantastic. Um, so the next the the next question from from Maurice is um, I think this ties in quite well actually to the the Loop Masters the Stranger Th- Stranger Synths. Mm-hmm. We're talking Careful. too long. Stranger Synths. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Loop Master uh, project that you went with. So his que- next question is uh, what is your approach um, for sync projects and TV? Now he was a bit vague with that one. Now I'm assuming he means with regards to the production. Um, Mm. How, how does that sort of start? Yeah, so I, the only thing that I've done like that is those sample packs. I don't, um, 
I don't work on uh, like production albums or, or sync stuff, so I haven't got okay. an angle on that. Um, the only the only thing that the, the story behind that one was simply that I had a load of friends go text me and, and, and email me and said, "Have you seen this thing, Stranger Things series? You'd love the soundtrack. It sounds just like the sort of music you make." Um, so then I checked it out and thought, "Oh yeah, it does." Um, I could probably do a sample pack of stuff that sounds a bit like that and people might be into it. So that's how that came about. Opportunity. Oh, I see. Yeah, fantastic. So did you do a lot of the total tangent here? Do you do a lot of sort of your own synth productions? Because obviously with the modular synths you've got on the background there, with time permitting, I guess. There's the big phrase, time permitting, um, which it isn't. Um, mm. So I did, I did a full-track <laughs> EP under the name um, Five Pages, which is five is a V, like the Roman numeral thing. So if you look up V pages yeah. on um, your streaming platform of choice, uh, there's a four-track EP there, um, which is a bit synthy. Uh, first track's a bit more guitar. There's a few guitars on it, but it's mostly synthy stuff and some friends singing. Um, uh, that, that's all I've, I've actually put out myself. This ends up on other people's records, basically. Um, oh, either cool. as... You know, if I'm mixing, I might put stuff through it or, or recommend they send a MIDI file with a synth part and, you know, I can, you know, embellish or replace or something. Uh, or just if I'm producing something, you know, th- this will end up on there somewhere. Fantastic. Excellent stuff. I've got, I'll go and check that out. Um, f- five pages um, on my po- on my streaming platform of choice. Yeah. Um, brilliant stuff. In fact, what I'll do is I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. Oh, cool. So, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so the audience can go away and, and have a listen to that as well. So the next question is from uh, Chaco Daniel. So he's a producer called Tholos. Asks, how do you dial in modern retro sounds during mixing? And he cites the Amy Winehouse Back to Black album. Um, that's quite a, a broad question there. Um, well, the first thing I'm going to say is that was mixed by Tom Elmhurst, not me. I recorded most of that. Ah. Um, but he mixed it. But um, I can certainly tell you how we recorded it to sound modern retro which was uh, yes, a conversation with, uh, with Mark uh, Ronson, who produced half the album. Um, Sal and Romy did the other half, but probably if you only know the singles, you know all Mark's ones. Um, and, and he said about wanting to sound old 60s girl group, Phil Spector, those kind of sounds. Because um, uh, I was doing, first session of the film was strings, um, a string session. And, did, uh, and I think actually we had brass and orchestral percussion on in one day. It was like quite a big kind of full-on, shipping things in and out of the recording room. So I set up a lot of valve mics and a lot of ribbon mics um, because those were the mics that they had in those days. That was the process that they had. So I thought, well, let's try and be as authentic as we can by using the the, the gear that they had. Um, but then also what I, I sort of thought as well, I'd read you know um, books about those sort of things. There's a really good uh, biography of Phil Spector, which is really interesting. But what, what they would do in those days often is they would have one mic in the room. They wouldn't they didn't have the capability to mic everything up individually so it'd be just one mic or a few mics that would cover the room and then you move the instruments closer or further away depending on how loud you want them to be um so i thought as an aside i'd put a ribbon mic in the studio that we were recording in had like a big um there was a bit of glass and concrete in a plaster unfortunately but there were some wooden bits and there was like a shell shaped wooden thing covering a corner like the inside of a shell so I put a ribbon mic up there to catch some, some room sound with an old mic, that sort of thing. Um, and then speaking to Tom afterwards when he was mixing or after he'd mixed it, that was that mic was what he used for most of the string sound. And then he just fed things into it from there. So that was a way of the, getting those to sound old was simply by using the techniques that they used and 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 the equipment that they used. And there you go. That's 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 how they did it. So that's how we'll do it. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so in terms of mixing, there's a few things you can do that are little tricks. Like, for example, if you set up the same room reverb or small hall, um, that's kind of, you know, and everything goes to that a little bit. That's that's how they were recorded in those days because everything was in the same room. There was, like, Phil Spector used a, a room called Gold Star where he did everything. Um, and uh, and so that can start to sound a little bit retro by the fact that that's, you know, that's that it's, it all sounds like it's in the same space. Um, and not going too bright on things because they didn't. Things weren't recorded that bright. Um, so concentrate more on warm and mellow is another one. Fantastic. It's inter- interesting that you mentioned Phil Spector there because um, as what, what's the date today? It's the, the 11th of November. I've challenged mm-hmm. myself. With, <laughs> I don't know why I've done this with writing a, Chris, uh, no, writing a Christmas song or covering a Christmas song. And hmm. um, I've been listening to, to Phil Spector's Christmas album. The finest and, Christmas um, album there yeah. is. <laughs> 
It is. It's very good. I was, I, what, I, what I was doing is I, I've been on a music sort of theory and composition and arrangement binge of late. And I was thinking, right, how are these songs put together? So I've been looking around online and then listening to songs and thinking, okay, this goes there, that goes there. What chords are they using? Chord progressions and all that sort of things. And it's really interesting, actually, mm. which is why it's led me down this Phil Spector route. But right. it's exactly what you mentioned there about the particular sound you have. Because when you listen to it, 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 it sounds like one microphone. But it, yeah. I guess it, it wouldn't sound the same if it was recorded... No, it wouldn't have that character. No, no, it's, yeah, that wall of sound thing, yeah, which is, yeah, which is cool. Interestingly, I did work with Phil Spector once, just as an assistant, and I got him to sign my copy of the Christmas album, which I was very pleased about. Oh, wow. But uh, but he said it was a good story. He um, said it took about nine months putting that album together um, with the writing and the recording and everything. It was a big, big project for him, because it was like, it was on his label, and it was like, I'm going to be rich, because I'm going to make, you know, the, the best Christmas album ever. And he said, and then... And then just before Christmas, Kennedy was shot and Christmas was cancelled in America. So then the oh, app wow. did nothing because nobody was really, they weren't going for it the way they had. And it took him years to, to recoup what he'd spent on it. Uh, but then obviously <laughs> since then it's been massive. But yeah, it was quite funny that that, uh, uh, that totally went, went very badly for, oh, wow. for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite the anecdote. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's not great when that happens. Well, I say when that happens, like it's happened a lot. But yeah, that's mm. uh, that is incredibly un- unfortunate. But like mm. you said, I think he's he's probably probably done quite well off the back of it. I think. Yeah, I want to say it was re-released. Right. I could I could be wrong. This this once again, this was late last night when I was researching right. the 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 um the foundations of a Christmas song. <laughs> um, so the, the final question is uh, from another community member called Dan Maloney. And the, uh, his, uh, his question is, when so much is possible inside the box, is investing in really pricey mic preamps worthwhile or would a good microphone and decent plug-in be better? I, thought, I suppose a good example of that would be like there's the Slate Digital uh, mic emulation, um, which you, you buy the Slate Digital mic and then you have various different mic modelings within their software. Yeah, yeah. Um- Unfortunately, I'm not particularly the best guy to answer that on, on the basis that I haven't used any of those. Um, I haven't used the modelling mics. I've heard good things. There was the Townsend one as well, which won won an award for best mic, not even best modelling mic, um, just as a great sounding mic, which then got bought by Universal Audio, the company. So I think that's turned into Universal Audio's mic. Or if they've got one out, it's that one, you know, or whatever. If if not, one's coming out soon and it's that. Um so, um, so I'm not sure, I guess, I guess maybe my advice would be to get something if you want to go that route of using a variety of different things. Um, it's still worth getting something that's high quality because you still want the best signal going in to the DAW. You know, if you have a bad signal going into a DAW, that's not very clear. There's not much, you can only color it from there. You can't make it better and clearer. So, so if that's the route you want to go, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend getting a nice quality one, but something that's quite clean. So like a Neve one, for example, is great, but it's fairly coloured, um, and which is a nice, you know, I, that's what I would go for, but that, then that's the choice I've made. You know, I've, I've made it, decided to sound like that. Or, or I have a couple of valve ones that I really like, so, so that's the choice I would make there. Uh, but if you went for something like, you know, a Grace Designs or a Millennia or something, they're, they're companies that are known for making gear, gear that's really high quality and really clean, and then from there in, you can then change it however you like, and that change will have the effect that you're looking for because you've you've got a full clean signal going in. So I think there's always there's always um, an argument for for having the best quality signal as far along the chain as you can get it. It's like there's a friend of mine used to describe. He says his woodwork teacher used to say, "Keep your wood as long as you can for as long as you can." Uh, meaning once you start chopping bits off, mm. you can't put them back together again. <laughs> so once you start loop degrading your signal, you can't make it posher again. So it's best just to keep it as clean and posh as you can for as long as possible until you want to start making decisions about it not being that. Yeah, I, I really like that analogy and it makes perfect sense. And it kind of falls or it's, it, it pairs nicely with the idea of getting it right at source when you're recording. Mm. So getting getting it right at source before mm. uh, right at that beginning there because... Yeah, as you say there, if you if if it's not there to begin with, putting putting it in or adding it can be mm. can be yeah. can be tricky, if not yeah. impossible. Yeah. Um, 
No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant answers to those, Dom. And I hope that's uh, for for those three listening and the audience as well has answered those questions. I'm sure it has. So the, the final bit really is, is is touching on the mixed consultancy because I think it's gonna, it could be a fantastic thing for for a lot of our listeners. Now, I've, I came across the mixed consultancy because I interviewed a, a producer called One Equals Two, Brandon Gantz, uh, a few months ago, and he mentioned oh, yeah. that he used your service. Yeah, yeah, yeah he has. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, he used to, yeah. Did, did a few things on that record. Yeah, 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 it's good. It was a good example, actually, of, of you know, he did a few tracks. We worked on a few tracks together, and, and he got better and better as, you know, as, as they went along. So, yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah, he, he mentioned it, and he and sort of signposted me in your direction. So, audience listening, if you want to go and check out that particular episode, is episode 35. Do so after listening to this one, obviously. But that's episode 35 with uh, 1 equals 2. Um, so I, I know you touched on it briefly earlier, but can you just give us a, like a really quick sort of uh, breakdown of the mixed consultancy? Because I know you, there's also tutorial elements and um, and courses involved in it as well, if I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, kind of. Well, yeah, I, I, there are some of those. So basically, the idea is it's a bit like I explained earlier. I, I managed to get my head over the, the another engineer once who had 20 years experience with me, saw what he did to my mixes, and I learned a ton in that period. So I thought. How can I make that available to people that can't afford, for time or money reasons, full-time education in, in music production? So I thought, well, I can, I can, I can do that. I can offer people that. So you upload your mix to me, um, and then there are two sort of packages. There's gold or platinum, and gold is I then I listen to it, I write down all the things that I would change at that point, and then I send you a PDF with all of those things. If you buy the platinum one, you then make the changes, do whatever you like to the mix, send it back to me, I check it from there. And I write another list of the things that I would change from here. Send that to you. Then you send, make the changes, send it back to me. And then I do a third round of, normally they, they get smaller as they move along, you know, because we're closing in on stuff. Um, but, they, you know, but things do change as you develop the mix through the, the, the changes that I've suggested. So then you get a third round where I send, you know, do your PDF for that. So that's gold and platinum packages of that. Um, the reason why I, there's a course that I have available, I made a course on how to record vocals. Um, and the reason why I did that is a lot of the problems that I hear are actually from people not having recorded the vocal very well. Uh, and their mix problems would be mostly or, or largely easier or gone uh, if they had a really good sounding vocal that was really well performed. So in, in the recording vocals course, which you can get to on the website, Mix Consultancy, um, I get into the psychology of it, like how to do pre-production, what to talk about, how to talk about things, tempo, lyrics, pitch, all of the things you need to do and know before you start recording. We talk a little bit about gear and talk about how to run the process of recording and what to do about editing, tuning, all that stuff afterwards. So you can just get a great lead vocal and and then you can, you know, mixing's just so much easier if you've got a great lead vocal to work for. So that's kind of what I've got with the mix consultancy. It's mostly about those kind of... Con, um, the consults, that's why I started it. But then I've got that course there because I know that the, that's that's a big part of what would help people get better at mixing as well. Fantastic. And going back to what you said there about the vocal, I suppose it sort of echoes what we mentioned just then about getting it, getting it right at source. And if, if you go through yeah. that process of learning and education and figuring out, actually, this is if I get this vocal how it should sound before it goes in, like you say, it's going to make it so much easier further down the line. Yeah, and I think people don't realise how, how much performance makes a difference to mixing. If the performance is great, mm you know, the mix is easier. Oh, yeah, and, and yeah, that, yeah, that's a big part of it, which is, which is why I get into the psychology a lot, because that the psychology of the session and you as a producer and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, because I've, I've sort of been more so on the other side of the glass, being the the um, the musician being recorded. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, the reason why that I then looked at production and I mean, mix engineering and, and whatnot is because I kind of poked my head around the door and I looked at the computer and I thought, actually, that's quite interesting. And I kind of want to know what, he's doing yeah. there at that desk yeah. and that's sort of how I sort of came into it the thing I find mad as well yeah the thing I find mad with it is uh, there's I, I put a lot into it and you know when I do a vocal session I'm thinking about lighting and you know all this sort of stuff and, and then there's people that record themselves and go oh well you know I won't bother with that stuff I just you know I have a cup of tea and then I start singing like why am I put why do I put more effort into someone's vocal session than they put into their own why would you not put that effort into <laughs> yeah. your own vocal? It's your vocal. Yeah. Like it matters more to you. You you know, your name's on everything. Yeah, yeah. My name's on it, but your name's bigger, you know, in bigger font than my name is, yeah. but I'll put more effort than you would. So let's find that mad. Like here's all the things you can do 
that I do to make something better psychologically, do it to yourself. Like learn that and 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 treat yourself in a way that means you will get the best performance. Yeah, it's um, blows me away that occasion when people just go, oh, I don't need to do that. It's like, no, you don't need to, but you'll be better if you do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I totally agree with that because I've I've fallen foul of that myself when I was recording an album many many years ago, and when I go into the studio, I tune my guitar I look at the intonation make sure mm-hmm. the uh, the truss rod truss rod was set all right the Floyd Rose is all good mm-hmm. make sure um, I had decent picks and everything all my cables were correct I had everything I needed but then when I'm sat at home recording I'm just like oh, I'll just pick my guitar off the wall and I'll start playing and record yeah. it and I don't yeah. know yeah it's exactly that it's yeah and maybe it's I don't know it's a convenience thing you sort of like oh it's, it's that relaxed atmosphere you you sort of need to take yourself away to another room or it's like you say it's the psychology of it isn't it it's totally yeah. the psychology when, uh, when you go into that studio better. you perform better i think when you've mm. set yourself up to know that your instruments bang on everything's ready to go you've got the lights dimmed your phone's off you know you know you're ready to record at that point and i think you you but i think a lot of people put a bit too much i mean this might sound a bit weird but a lot of people put a bit too much emphasis on having a relaxed performance sometimes it doesn't want to be relaxed sometimes it wants to be present and it wants to be urgent and it wants to be, you know, all 100% in the moment as opposed to, you know, leaning back on your chair going, oh, that'll do. I've got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. I totally agree. And having played metal, it was very much, I mean, we, we couldn't sit back <laughs> and relax no. and play. It was all very da 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 yeah, that. So, lean uh, forward, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, pay to, and and try and stay in time. That was always my, that's why I kind of, I think that's why I kind of moved the other way because I was like, <laughs> mm, I'm not as good as the other guitarist. So I'm going to start honing my skills somewhere else, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, Dom, thank you very much. We've we sort of reached the hour mark now and this has been fantastic. Okay. And I know the, the audience listening is, uh, it's going to take so much away from this as I, I, I have done as well. So a really big thank you for spending the time with me today, this, this yeah, Friday evening. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, very, well, it's fantastic to, to get, get your knowledge and, and spread your knowledge throughout the year for our audience. So a big, cool. big thank you. And um, I'll catch up with you soon, Dom. Yeah, cheers. Hi, this is Ghost Georgie. My favorite episode of Inside the Mix is episode 38 right now because it was cool to hear about Pensacola Mist's um, creative process and um, working on doing the songs live. Just a friendly reminder before you go, don't miss out on your free test master at Synth Music Mastering. Imagine enhancing your music with my dedicated commitment to quality and that personalized touch. And guess what? It's absolutely free of charge. To claim your free test master now at synthmusicmastering.com or click on the link in the episode description.